0: so excited to have everybody out it's so important to us that we get people to not only participate in this symposium but come to hear all of these wonderful local stories Um, as the county museum we really feel like this is a great venue to bring together all of these different people who research the history but are also just interested in history especially of our local area so thank you for coming out and supporting this event in whatever capacity that you're here today but I would like to go ahead and introduce our first speakers today Uh, we have Diana Dresky, who is our curator here at the Best Bower Dunn Museum and also Al Westerman who is an independent researcher and has been working in Lake County history for a long time their talk is going to be going dry pre prohibition in Lake County and this is their their description prior to prohibition there was a united effort to impose temperance at the local level This presentation discusses the history of pre-prohibition efforts to eliminate saloons and prevent consumption of alcoholic beverages in Lake County from the 1840s to 1910s. Please help me in welcoming Diana and Al. Good morning.
1: So as uh, Selena introduced, um, Al and I will be discussing pre-prohibition efforts in Lake County from the time of settlement up to the 1910s, actually up to 1916 to eliminate saloons and prevent consumption of alcoholic beverages. For temperance supporters, saloons were the enemy. No matter how much they railed against the drink, saloons remained open. These temperance advocates had to find ways to chip away at the big problem of saloons represented here by a boulder. Lake County was established with saloons but also had a strong temperance element. The temperance movement had its start in New England in the early 1800s and was transplanted to the Midwest um, and to Lake County by the settlers. Among those settlers was Wealthy Red from Connecticut. In 1842, Wealthy and her husband, Jonathan, bought 77 acres in Gurnee at the intersection of Milwaukee Road and the little forks at Fox Lake Road. And this photograph here from the turn of the century uh, shows this location. So actually, uh, here's the mother Rudd house. This road that runs through there today is called Kilbourne Road, and at the time this was the Milwaukee Road, so we know Route 21 Milwaukee Avenue today. It veered east at Grand Avenue in Gurney and took a sharp left turn on today's Kilbourne Road. So this is where the stage route actually went. The road out front here is today's old Grand Avenue, and at that time it was the main road between Waukegan and Fox Lake. The family built their home to include accommodations for travelers, and you can see that in this photograph how large the building is. And this was um, in 1843. They named it the O'Plain House, and that's because Gurney was called O'Plain at the time. Wealthy made the decision to open the old plain house as a temperance tavern so this was very deliberate where no liquor would be served. She was the first woman innkeeper in Lake County and she became known as Mother Rudd for her hospitality. The temperance movement advocated abstinence from all alcohol and was mostly made up of women who were affected daily by their menfolk, spending money on whiskey, rum, and hard cider, and coming home drunk and abusive. Temperance Taverns developed in the early 1800s as an alternative to the public saloon where alcohol was served. A short distance from Mother Rudd's was Barney Hicks' saloon called the California Exchange. And he was actually down the road um, a little east on Old Grand Avenue from her. Hicks built his saloon directly across the street from a one-room schoolhouse. The townsfolk resented this and the fact that there were raucous drunken men who frequented the saloon and who were in plain view of the school children. Since Hicks wasn't breaking the law, the community couldn't shut down his saloon. So they took matters into their own hands and they moved the school. (laughs) <laughs> and you can see here in the distance on the left there where the arrow is that's where they moved the saloon to so uh, the schoolhouse so just down the road from Mother Rudd which was a temperance tavern the temperance movement continued to grow and about 1850 Horace Butler of Libertyville made a speech to the town citizenry Butler had come to Libertyville in 1839 from New Hampshire and one of, was one of the county's first lawyers He was also a Justice of the Peace, Postmaster, and served one term in the Illinois Legislature. Butler began his speech, which um, this is actually his handwritten notes for his speech that are in the collections here at the Dunn Museum. Butler began his speech to a crowd of his neighbors with an apology. He had feelings of embarrassment that temperance had not occupied much of his attention. Now he was clearly seeing that he needed to get involved in the temperance movement. His speech went on at length about intemperance and drink. He said, It is not surprising that intemperance should exist to a greater degree in a new settlement than an old one. So here he's referring to Libertyville as being a new settlement, which it was. He goes on, It is often said that ardent spirit operates as a preventative to many diseases to which man is subject to in a new settlement and sometimes even given liquor under the advice of a physician. So at this time it was um, normal for doctors to actually prescribe liquor to help people with ailments and um, pain relief. (laughs) I think some people use it the same way today. Uh, Butler continued, um, stating that uh, it is frequently said that Libertyville's water is different than the water from our eastern shores, that it is impure in its natural state. And to guard against disease and to preserve our health, we must rectify it with a little whiskey. (laughs) So at this time in American history, um, people did not understand the causes of disease or how you contract the disease. They didn't understand that it could be transmitted by insects or with germs and so they turned instead to blaming the environment and a change in climate from one part of the country to another as the cause of illness. So tuberculosis, for example, was one of those diseases that um, when the settlers came here and many of the people contracted tuberculosis, they said, well, it's colder here. so that must be what's happening or there's, there's more uh, wetlands so that must be the, the fault of that. Butler directly opposed uh, this suspicion of the water in Libertyville about it being bad and or the new climate um, which they said was causing them to become ill. Contrary to this belief, he said use of alcohol as a remedy or preventative to disease actually creates many diseases and predisposes man to many others. So he's really trying to educate his neighbors here on this idea. It's interesting to note that despite these early suspicions regarding the water, Libertyville went on to a thriving mineral springs businesses in the late 1890s and early 1900s. So clearly that attitude did change over time. So with this introduction to temperance, the temperance element in the county from its very beginnings, Al will now discuss one of the methods used to achieve temperance goals.
2: Well, I'd like to start out here talking a little bit about the first law that was passed in the state of Illinois involving the restrictions to be placed on saloons, and that was a Sunday closing law. And uh, how that was argued, you know, by the anti-saloon people to the state legislature essentially wasn't that we're against the saloons, but what we want to do is make sure you're aware that Sundays are for a day of worship and for and family get-togethers. So it shouldn't be a day where people go to the saloons and spend the family money. So if you're on a state legislature, how are you gonna vote against that? You're really not, because this is family values, what you're talking about. So the state legislature had no problem approving the Sunday Closing Law in 1845, and what it involved was a statewide law that essentially closed all saloons in the state of Illinois on Sundays. You are not allowed to open up a saloon or even uh, provide the sales of liquor. And it was not uh, enforced by the state. Enforcement was primarily left up to the uh, local uh, governmental agencies. Over the years, you know, we did have some impacts, you know, from this. It came to really kind of had in Chicago in 1855 with the Chicago uh, beer, uh, lager, beer riots. And however, uh, main objections to it really didn't happen until we got in Lake County until we got into the time period of Mayor William Pierce, who was mayor in Waukegan at that time. He was elected in 1897. And uh, one of the things that he did, he did not enforce the Sunday closing hours. Why was that? So I think you have to look what was going on in Waukegan at that time. Waukegan was rapidly becoming a major industrial town, needing thousands of employees, and there wasn't enough labor nearby to meet the demand. So did; they, they recruited people from Europe to come over and work in these uh, several industries down by the lakefront. And along with the Europeans coming over came their culture. And one of their cultures was to have uh, beer gardens, also saloons. And working six days a week, all you had was essentially Sundays to get together with your families at the beer gardens or to meet your friends at the saloon and have a few drinks. What appeared to me is that the mayor noticed that and he had some compassion well, these people are hardworking six days. We have them over here, you know, provide, you know, employment for these industries. Need to be a little compassionate here and allow them to participate, you know, in their beer gardens, you know, on Sundays. So he did not enforce the law. That didn't sit very well with many of the uh, oh, re- uh, religious organizations in town. In fact, it kind of came to a head in 1903 when Reverend Ptolemy to the Congregational Church decided to take law into his own hands and what he did was he started publicly going after the mayor not only at the pulpit and also in the streets of Waukegan stating that the mayor is wrong he needs to follow the state law he needs to close the uh, saloons on Sunday and and on top of that the Chicago Tribune states Reverend Talmage. he got some of his associates together and they went out and actually had 20 saloon owners arrested for being open on Sunday. I wish they would have explained a little bit more of how the arrests were done, but that's how they reported it. I don't know if it's like a citizen's arrest or how they did that, but anyway, they managed to get 20 saloon owners arrested. Definitely did not sit well with the mayor. So what the mayor, and I'll have to, I'll talk, this is, I can't do any better than this, I'll just use his, his voice here. It's what he said, this angered the mayor who in turn shut off the water to the church in retaliation for meddling in politics and beginning a war on Waukegan saloons. So, finally, after a few days, though, that you finally the calmer heads prevailed. And, uh, you know, the water was turned back on, you know, at the church. You know, but however, it didn't prevent, you know, the mayor from closing the saloons. They were still open. In 1907, now, This is where it really started to become serious with the the Temperance people. A few years earlier, we had the Lake County Law and Order League formed, and their principal mission at the time was to close the gambling joints and slot machines across Lake County. And they were pretty successful at that. In fact, they even bragged, like, we've done a great job. We closed up the gambling in Lake County. So what are we going to do? We're going to now focus in on eliminating... The saloons from being open on Sunday. We're going to make sure the Sunday closing law is enforced. What that led to, it took a few years though, but in 1911, the Lake County Law and Order uh, League, along with several women's temperance groups, civic organizations, and several of the ministers in Waukegan, all formed this coalition. And they didn't go to the city of Waukegan, because they knew they wouldn't get any support from the mayor. They went to the state's attorney at this time because this was a state law that was being violated. So they they convinced the state's attorney, says you have to do something because Waukegan is an open violation of the state law on on Sunday closing. The state's attorney's agreed to that. He sent his men out on the first Sunday after that and had 80 saloons closed up and their proprietors arrested. 80 saloons, that's like every saloon that was in Waukegan and North Chicago at that time. He basically told them, now if we, I see you opening up again, not only will he be arrested again, we're gonna double the fines on you. And if you do it a third time, we're gonna double the fines again. So essentially, that ended the Sunday opening you know, in Waukegan and North Chicago, Was that. Then, in, in 1914, they, he did the same thing down to the saloons that were still open in, uh, in the Lake Zurich area, in Hila Township. He closed those up on Sundays. And I just want to bring up this slide here, just to bring up a point. This is a J.P. saloon out in the uh, Fox Lake area. What I found interesting about it was all this effort was spent over the years to close the saloons in an industrial areas, you know, Waukegan and North Chicago. But I couldn't find one reference anywhere that there was an attempt to close the saloons or the resorts on Sundays in the of Lakes area. You know, there st- has to be a story there. Why were they not part of this mass closing that was done on the Lake Shore, Lake Michigan lakeshore, but not at the chain of lakes? So that's kind of a story in itself.
1: Some of the communities actually addressed the temperance issue by incorporating as dry, and these included Lake Forest in 1861, Highland Park 1869, Lake Bluff in 1895, and Zion in 1901. One of the most publicized dry communities was actually in South Waukegan, which is today's North Chicago, and had a connection to the Women's Christian Temperance Union. In the early 1870s, women in the Midwest were inspired to conduct nonviolent protests against the dangers of alcohol, although in this allegorical political cartoon from 1874, their efforts are shown as temperance campaigners, pictured as armored women warriors, destroying barrels of whiskey and beer. From their nonviolent violent protests, the Women's Christian Temperance Union formed in Ohio and had quick success in banning liquor in 250 communities. For the first time, women realized that they could accomplish a lot by standing together. In 1879, Frances Willard of Evanston became the president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and she turned the organization to political means in addition to moral persuasion to achieve total abstinence. Under the auspices of the Temperance Union, women began to enter into real estate development. The Woman's Land Syndicate was created in the spring of 1892 are managed by uh, Mrs. Emmons out of the Temperance Union's temple in Chicago. Emmons even used the temple as the logo on her letterhead and brochures. So here is a picture of the building as it was built in Chicago on one of the brochures for the land syndicate. The woman's land syndicate spent $500,000 for 2,000 lots in South Waukegan. <laughs> $500,000 in 1892 has an equivalent buying power today of $14 million. The lots were purchased within the Washburn and Mowen wire mills new residential subdivision, which would later incorporate as North Chicago. The company subdivision prohibited the sale and distribution of liquor, and this is what attracted the women of the Temperance Union to this location. The land syndicate issued profit-sharing investment bonds at $10 each, sold to women only. So you would invest in this, in fact, the women's magazines talked about this being a really solid, good investment, and then you would get your your, um, profit-sharing bond. Unfortunately, their success was short-lived because just the following year, The Panic of 1893 occurred, and that was one of the worst economic downturns in U.S. history. This caused the collapse of many large companies, including the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad and the Women's Land Syndicate. Another method in the war against the drink were setbacks. So these were uh, local zoning laws that prohibited saloons from being established within a certain area near churches, schools, libraries, or military installations. This was another way for temperance advocates to control or rather shut down saloons. In 1899, the US Congress passed an act prohibiting the sale of of liquor, of alcohol, in military canteens. This would include Fort Sheridan's Canteen. Fort Sheridan was established in 1887. The saloon keepers in Highwood, though, were happy about this, and they opened more saloons anticipating a brisk business from the soldiers. When the fort was established, this was actually one of the fears that the local residents had, was that the soldiers would be in town drinking and causing trouble. So their fears came true. Um, And you can see from this headline in one of the Chicago papers, they're talking about the canteen is being closed and the soldiers have woe and joy over this for this new anti-beer act. In 1906, the colonel commanding Fort Sheridan issued an order prohibiting the soldiers from entering Highwood. So, just within a few short years, they can see the problem that's happening, and now the, the commanding officer is saying, you can't even go outside the fort now and drink, you're causing problems. The men were told that if they were caught, they would be subject to 14 days in solitary confinement on a diet of bread and water. This however did not dissuade the men from going into town. (laughs) By early 1907, the saloons in Highwood were getting more pressure from the Law and Order League than Al discussed and also women's groups to close the saloons. A proposal for a saloon-free zone within one and one-eighth mile of Fort Sheridan or any government installation was proposed and passed by the Illinois State Legislature and that took effect on January 1st, 1908. The new law forced all the saloons in Highwood to close. By 1911 that one and one-eighth mile distance was no longer considered large enough. So here they're actually, in 1907, uh, talking about the highwood saloons as dives and also dens of vice. So there's really this campaign against the saloons and getting them closed. So the next effort was taken up by Catholic and Protestant churches along the North Shore, all the way from Glencoe up to Waukegan. And they proposed a five-mile prohibition zone around all military installations. The leaders in this effort included Pastor Gavin of the Immaculate Conception Church in Waukegan. This group petitioned President Taft to influence the Illinois State Legislature when he visited Springfield later that year. They wanted him to talk to the legislature about establishing this five miles saloon-free zone around Fort Sheridan and the newly established Great Lakes Naval Training Station. Had this legislation been approved, it would have closed 60 saloons in Waukegan, 20 in North Chicago, two in Deerfield, and one in Roundout. The closest remaining saloon would have been in Libertyville. The legislation did not pass.
2: Now I'd like to talk a little bit about the local option. We previously talked about other uh, laws that put restrictions on saloons, but they basically were just taking chips out of that boulder, the saloon boulder that we saw earlier, the local option actually cracked that boulder. And what it was, the local option provided for local um, voters to vote on whether a community should offer saloon licenses or not offer saloon licenses. In 1907, the state of Illinois approved the local option. Now, it wasn't exactly what the temperance people wanted the Temperance People fought for a decade or more trying to get the law, and it wasn't until a fifth time that they're actually successful in getting it approved by the state legislature. But however, what they wanted, voters to be able to vote on the entire county going dry or staying wet. And the state legislature didn't approve that. And then they also wanted large, large city of Chicago to be di- divided up into all dramatic wards, where in- each individual ward could. Vote on whether to be dry or wet, and that did not pass. But what they did provide was that individual townships could vote for dry or wet, and individual cities or villages could remain dry. Now what is interesting, for example, in Waukegan Township, if Waukegan Township approved to go dry, it also included all the cities or villages within that township. So you didn't have to have a separate vote in the city of Waukegan. If the township went dry and the city of Waukegan part was in Waukegan Township, it went dry. The local townships didn't really waste much time. It was the following year that voters, and also primarily you know, led by you know, the temperance people, they got their petitions together, and what did you needed at that time was uh, 25% of the voters, based upon the previous major election, for example, if a major election had 400 individuals that voted, you would need 100 people to sign a petition to put the measure on the ballot. And it was a straightforward ballot. And what the ballot would say should the township, just say, Joaquin Township, approve saloon licenses? Or should they not approve saloon licenses? But basically, a simple yes or no, no vote. And what I have here are the results you know, of that uh, election. And, well, uh, not really election. It was a referendum that they were approving. And uh, it was not advisory. Or this, was, this was a mandatory. If they voted to go dry, the saloons had to close. If you notice that half of the townships in 1908, the voters were allowed to make that decision. That's half of the township because at that time there were 16 townships. So you had eight of them up. Only three went dry. This was not really a win for the temperance people at all. Their their primary goal was they really wanted Antioch and Waukegan to go dry because that's where the most of the uh, saloons were. Only three saloons ended up being closed. Warren Township that went dry they were already dry there were no saloons. But they wanted to make sure that they wouldn't have any established. The one saloon in Benton Township was up in Winter Harbor. It was a night bar saloon, and uh, they were forced to go dry. But what he did. He just picked up his uh, business and moved across the state line and opened up a new shop right across the state line in Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin. The two of them in Newport Township, one of them was uh, uh, the Russell Tavern. We know it as R&R Tavern today. Back then it was known as the Burke Hotel. And the other one in Newport Township, I have not been able to find where that was located. All, the only information I have was that there was two saloons in Newport Township closed. And I'm still looking, and maybe someday I'll find where that second saloon was. Now, this issue could be brought up every two years. They brought up, for example, Antioch and Joaquin, they brought that up in uh, 2010. It failed. stayed wet. They brought it up in 2012. Failed. stayed wet. Now, you get to 1914, things changed. All of a sudden, you notice that we got three more townships going dry. In fact, Lake Villa was a new township that was created in 1913. And that was created out of parts of Antioch and Avon Township. And Lake Villa, unfortunately, I couldn't find how many saloons were closed there. But Libertyville, two saloons were closed. Vernon Township had six saloons closed. And most of those were in a half-day area. Then in 1916, this was a major victory for the temperance movement. Look what happened. Waukega now is dry. 46 saloons closed. Avon Township you know, is closed. Seven saloons closed. Antioch stays wet. They never were able to get Antioch. Antioch always stayed wet. But you want to know what, what happened here? What happened earlier on versus 1914 and 1816? The women's vote. 1913, they were allowed to vote on local issues. And they changed everything. In fact, the newspapers would make a big story about it. They would say, like, Avon Township went dry by 42 votes. And then they would list the women vote. Women vote was 170 to go dry, 30 to stay wet. Well, there's the difference right there. So it was a huge impact, the the ability for women to to vote. And it it changed a lot of things. Now, one of the consequences of this, it not only had impacts on the saloons closing, but it also had effect for down the Beasley Brewing Company. This is a, a well-known brewery that had been established in 1852, and, and at the time was very profitable. If had a couple of years earlier, oh, approved another $100,000 in improvements to the brewery, and they anticipating of doubling their cap- capacity, but all of a sudden they were under shock here. Come 1916, all the saloons are closed, North Chicago, Waukegan. Where are they going to sell their beer now? That was the primary outlet. You know, they did ship it to Chicago and other areas, the Chain of Lakes, but still, in their own backyard now they could not sell their beer. They run the numbers and anytime they could sell it, they'd have to ship it out. And One of their old ship, shipping methods, it wasn't all by horse and buggy, but this is kind of a good example of how they used to transport beer you know, locally. You know, by 1916 they actually had a full day moving truck, you know, that helped, uh, you know, move their beer <laughs> on. But anyway, Thomas Snelling, who was president of the uh, Waukegan Brewing Company, he did the numbers and decided that there's no way that he can stay in business because he says I can't even sell in my own backyard If I have to sell anything to the Waukegan residents I have to take it outside the area to an area that is wet the people have to go out to that area bring the beer back into Waukegan to consume it and he says I can't do that just it's too cost prohibitive and they closed the brewery just a little side note my uh, father told me a story that uh, he went to school, at Andrew Cook School. That was right near the brewery. And when he was just a child there, that after a close, it was just abandoned, the brewery. And he, he and his friends, they used to go into the brewery and they play around the old vats and stuff in there because it was wide open at the time. So they so thought that was very exciting to me, man. would <laughs> <laughs> be. And what I want to talk, I talk, just talked about this. Earlier. This is uh, the Burke Hotel in Russell, Illinois. And this one I'm very familiar with. That's why I have it here. The issue is, what do these saloons do once they're closed down? Do they just abandon it? Do they uh, sell it off for something else? But in this case here, the Burke Hotel, the history of it, it was built by the Burke Brothers Brewing Company in Chicago, and they were still manufacturing beer, you know, all the way through, up to Prohibition. And they built this in 1906. What happens in 1908? The vote by the Newport residents to eliminate it. Here it's only two years old, and now they're out of business. So they were fortunate, what they did, they kept, they kept ownership till 1915, but during that time is that they leased out the first floor. They divided it up into separate little businesses. You had a pool hall in there, you had a barber shop, and, and you actually had a butcher shop. And then on the upper floors, they leased that out to the, to the former Chicago-Milwaukee railroad, and that's where their uh, employees stayed. And What's interesting, when you look at the census records, all the railroad employees are all Italian immigrants. It's, it's almost, if this and another hotel, like the town of Russell, all of a sudden was half of, half of the population was uh, Italian immigrants. But that's how they managed to survive. Now, the other saloons, you know, this was really a major impact on them. A lot of them had big investments. They maybe had mortgages on their properties. They had big investments in their front and back bars. They didn't want to lose all of that. So what they did was, they then created themselves a soft drink parlors. So they would remain open that way by selling soft drinks. A little interesting story about that. They didn't just do soft drinks sales. <laughs> what they started out, which became very popular during National Prohibition, if they, if they had friends coming in or people they could trust, they would always have a flask of liquor nearby and they would just pour that a little bit into their soft drinks. And then that's how then they started calling blind pigs. At that time. But most of them were able to stay in business by, by calling themselves soft drink parlors.
1: This is actually our conclusion. Um, prohibition came earlier in Lake County than on the national level through the efforts of temperance advocates, the Law and Order League, and individuals including religious civic leaders and the Unified Women's Movement. So, thank you very much. guess we might have a minute or two if you have questions. Um, I was wondering, when you showed the slide with the wet and dry,
2: Wakanda Township was established in 1850, Why right? Was it an option they didn't even have to vote at all? No, uh, of. one what year did, they yeah. Well, one year they did vote. That was on one of those years that they, none of them went dry. I don't recall it. it was 1910 or 1912. But they did once try it and it stayed wet. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, the only townships that I could find that never were presented for that vote was Cuba Township. never could find that. And in Grant Township, they tried one year, but the town threw out their petitions because they had a lot of falsely signed uh, signatures on the, on the petitions. So that was thrown out, and what I got, they didn't try again out there. Where was the Beasley Tavern located? Oh, the Beasley Brewing Company? Yeah. Yeah, that was located on uh, uh, north of 120 and uh, was it, yeah, it County said? Street? Yeah. It was south of, the, south of the ravine, south of the Waukegan Ravine. It was actually right on the ravine. And one of the reasons why they located there in the ravine is that it made it easier for them to build uh, cellars, storage cellars. You know, especially after, while, they started brewing uh, lager beers and that needed cold storage. But, you know, unfortunately, I wish that brewery was still there. It was a magnificent brewery. But, you know, after they abandoned it, it was just a few years they tore it down. And today there's a a huge apartment building that's on there right now. Yeah, it seems like uh, where they had uh, a densely uh, resort area, those ones didn't go dry. Right. Something was political there, it must have been something that... So. Yeah, so you're paid to keep it. Well,
1: part of, to the history of the resort areas is it was a lot of influential people from Chicago that were coming out, so a lot of politicians, you had mayors, all those people were coming out there, and that was where they went to get away from things. Mm-hmm. And um, we saw that during Prohibition, which Ty is going to talk about later with the gangsters, So, I feel like that's part of the story, Um, and I think it's interesting to note that they stayed wet the entire time.
2: And it's not that they didn't try. (laughs) They tried every year, you know, from 1918 up to 1916. They didn't in 1918. They tried to get it dry, and the voters kept voting it wet. I wonder who the voters were. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. There could have been a lot of people, Chicago people, up there at that time, you know, in their in their cottages. So, what are some of the towns in these? Were they never uh, these resort areas that never went thrive? What, would just some, some, just like?
1: Well, it's Antioch. Um, is Fox Lake part of that? Yeah, oh yeah, Fox Lake, Ingleside. Ingleside. Sorry, primarily one of those three. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Oh, okay.